A good morning, Crossway family. It's so good that you joined us online. As Pastor John mentioned earlier, we did have our uh, in-person, first in-person service in over six months, and so that was a big treat, and the weather was so nice, and it was so good to worship together with everyone and to see some faces that we really missed. And so that was great, and uh, next week, if you are able to, we would love to have you uh, join us. And so uh, please keep that in mind. Also, we always, uh, during this time, we always have some good news. We uh, want to congratulate Harry and Esther, the Yu family. They had their daughter this last week. And so they have two boys and now uh, Lauren Michelle Yu. And so we thank God for her and uh, look forward to seeing all of the Yu family. Hopefully you are doing well. And uh, I hope that you guys are all doing well. I just want to thank everyone in this room who is putting this all together, our worship team and the people behind the scenes. I want to thank you all. And somehow we made it here uh, up to this point and we continue on. Uh, it's been a, a weird few weeks, hasn't it? Uh, the weather has been so hot and then we had the smoke and the fires and then we had an earthquake, right? And so um, those are all bad combos, but by God's grace, we are still here and going. And uh, today we look at this um, passage at the end of uh, Habakkuk 2 to the beginning of Habakkuk 3. And so we have uh, today another week, one more week in our series on this minor prophet book. Uh, but what we see here is where people um, seek their security, their hope and trust. Who do they put their hope and trust in? That's what we see. And in the end of, in chapter 2, we see now a list of woes, right? Uh, the rest of chapter 2, you'll see woe to them, woe to them, woe to them. The Chaldeans and the things that they missed out. And uh, what we see here is that the last woe, he condemns them. God condemns them. This is God speaking to uh, Habakkuk and the people, the Israelites. And he condemns them because of their false gods or their idols, that they're believing in their idols. They're going to their idols for security, for hope, for trust. Uh, and now you can imagine, if you can imagine the uh, people of God, the Israelites, the southern kingdom, they're becoming weaker and more vulnerable. And what is happening is the enemy, the Babylonian empire is growing and it is tempting for them to look towards uh, the uh, Babylonian empire and think, why are they prospering? Why are they doing so well? Who are they praying to? Who are their gods? And it is tempting, and it has been all throughout the Old Testament, where the people of God get tempted into now believing in false gods. Even when they had visibly, audibly heard and seen God Almighty, they often fall to the false gods. And why is that? Why do they do that? Because they correlate the riches and success of others to the gods that they now bow down to. So they think, boy, if they, if the Babylonians are doing well, and then maybe I should copy what they're doing. And really, though the times have changed, uh, people haven't. And we do the same still. We in the church are tempted often to look at those who are successful in the world around us, in the culture around us, and think, boy, if I could copy them, what do they value? What are their gods? And then we adopt it immediately. And where, let me ask you, where do you place your hope? 
Where do you place your trust, your hope and your trust? Whatever we put our hope and trust in other than God becomes our idol. And so we have to be also very careful of this. Today we want to look at this passage. And we're going to do two parts. One part is we see the list of the, the qualities of these idols, how God describes them. Um, and the second part we'll see is how God is described, how he is the opposite of these idols. And so let me go through this list of uh, what the idols are like. First of all, the idols are created. They're created by man for man. The irony of following the gods is that we, that we as humans have created these gods and then we follow them. It tells us in verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? What profit is it when the maker has shaped it? He's saying, let's keep clear. God is saying, let's keep clear who the maker is and who the creation is. Let's keep that in perspective, that man has made the idols for himself. There's a quote in, uh, by C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He talks about all the ancestors of the day and why they do what they do. Uh, it says, when Satan, and I just want to read a little quote, when Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors, what Satan had put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery, the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. This, the reason why it can never succeed is this. God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gas, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn. So, He's saying, why do they do all this? What is going on in history? Why are people trying to find their contentment in other things? Um, and this is what is happening. You know, there's uh, the reformer John Calvin had that famous line that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Our hearts the sinfulness of our hearts, we continue to make idols. And so it is correct what we see here in our text that the maker has shaped it. What profit is an idol? What's the point when now a blacksmith or when a woodworker makes some kind of an idol and they bow down to it? What is the purpose of that? They are made by man for man's purpose. The second thing is, idols are not trustworthy. You cannot trust idols. Uh, they have no power in anything. It says in the latter part of verse 18, For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Now let's pause and think. The maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. How foolish is that? When someone who makes it now trusts in it. It's one thing to make it, but it's another to now put your trust into this. We are called to be people who trust in God. And let me ask you, do you trust in anything else? 
Do you find your security or peace in something else, someone else other than God? We are people of God. You are only to put your trust in God. There's a book by G.K. Beale uh, titled, We Become What We Worship. We Become What We Worship. And the book uh, gives, uh, goes through the scriptures and explains how, how and why idolatry is there and how we become that idol. So the idea is there's a circular thing happening. Um, we make the idol. The things that bring us, the things on earth that will bring us some kind of security, some kind of trust and joy we could put into it. Once we make it and then we bow to it, we start becoming like it. Psalm 135 there's a description here in verse 15, uh, 16, 17. I'm just going to read verse 18. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So the man makes the idol. The idol, whether it's of the, for the sun or for the rain or for fertility or for riches or sex or beauty or wealth or whatever it is, they make the idol. They bow to that idol, and now they start becoming like that idol. That's all they think about. That's all they want. That's the focus of their lives. You know, Paul says uh, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 2, and 2 through 4, just to, um, he lists out the things that people are going to idolize. And Timothy's a pastor, so he's talking about the people of the world today, and he's telling him these are the things, and he says they will be lovers of self, lovers of money, Lovers of pleasure. And these can become our idols. These are the things that we can love. Now, uh, taking care of ourselves is a good thing. Money is given by God. It's a good thing to use. Pleasure is given by God. It's good to have. But when it becomes now our identity, when it becomes now my source of trust and hope, uh, we have replaced God for these things. Uh, thirdly, is, uh, idols are powerless. So not only are they... Uh, not trustworthy. They're not trustworthy because they are powerless. It says here, verse 19 of our text, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. There is nothing. It is powerless. It can do nothing. Rise, can this teach? Does this teach? Can this teach? Uh, the Bible describes Jeremiah in this way. And it says uh, in Jeremiah 10.5, it says that their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. And so we ask, what is going on here? Uh, he describes them as a scarecrow. They can do nothing. They can do nothing. They cannot speak, it says in Jeremiah 10.5. They have to be carried. Uh, they cannot walk. They're afraid. Do not be afraid of them. They can do nothing, it says. And so we remember that they are powerless as well. And so I don't know if you ever carry around with you a charm or some kind of a good luck thing or some kind of uh, object that you think will help you. Maybe you put something in your house. But all of those things as Christians, uh, 
are powerless to us. Um, there is no lucky charm for the Christian. God is ultimately in control. So uh, there's a story of a Japanese warlord named Hideyoshi in the 1500s. He ruled Japan, and he had commissioned a colossal statue of Buddha to be built in Kyoto. So this was going to take 50,000 men five years to build. And they built this huge statue of Buddha in the hills in Kyoto, and they had a temple over it. Well, in 1596, there was the earthquake in Kyoto. Earthquake big enough that it shattered the temple that was around it, and it crushes uh, this, it crushes the uh, idol that's there. And the story goes that Hideyoshi, in his fury, seeing now the rubble of this idol, goes to it. He takes a bow and arrow, and he shoots an arrow at the fallen colossal uh, idol, and he yells, I put you here at a great expense, and you can't even look after your own temple, he says. You can do nothing. So what we see here is that God is now uh, contrasted to the false idols. God is contrasted. And so we saw the qualities of the idol, but we also see now the qualities of the Lord God, the living God, our God. And we see in verse 26 that God is near or God can be found. The first thing it says in verse 20 is the word but. A, B, and C, but. The idols might be there, but. The idols are formed by humans. They are powerless, but God, but the Lord. And we see that. The Lord is in His holy temple. There is a location of God, the idea that God is near. God is with. And the theologians called the nearness of God the imminence of God. This is one of his attributes, imminence, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E, that he is near, he is close, he is with us. And when you look through the book of Hebrews, which we went through uh, not that long ago at church, we see that phrase over and over, let us draw near, let us draw near. It says it over and over throughout the book. It's the idea that Christ is now have been sacrificed and we can now go uh, to God through Christ and we could draw near. And so Hebrews 4.16, uh, 4, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Hebrews 7.19, A better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Um, Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, so on and so forth. The idea that God is near, that God is close, I hope that you would find that encouraging. I hope that you would find that to be your strength. The Israelites, when Moses went up to Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments and didn't return, they wanted God nearby and they erected this now golden calf, an image of what they thought God would be like. And it was an abomination to God. But they wanted something near. And let me encourage you that God is near you. God is with you. And that's the first thing we're reminded in this text. The idols are there. They don't hear. They can do nothing but the Lord. He is in His holy temple. He is near. You can go find Him. You can seek Him. Secondly is, God speaks to us. He listens and He speaks to us. We can listen to Him. Verse 18 reminds us that the fool, he makes speechless idols. 
They cannot speak. Why pray to someone who cannot speak? Why seek guidance from someone who cannot tell you which way to go? But in contrast, in verse 2, chapter 3 of Habakkuk, verse 2, the first thing he talks about is hearing. I heard. I have heard the report of you, speaking of God. It's the idea that there is something to listen to. Someone is speaking, and he has heard. In Habakkuk chapter 3, it is kind of sandwiched. In chapter 3, verse 2, I heard, and he lists the report. He goes back and he hears. Maybe in the temple he hears about what God has done for the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. And after he hears it, at the end, in chapter 3, verse 16, he again, he says, I hear and my body trembles. He hears. God is speaking. What does this mean to us? It means that we value the Word of God because the Word of God is His Word. It's Him speaking to us. R.C. Sproul uh, goes as far as to say, to have the Word of God is to have God Himself. For when Scripture speaks, God speaks. When we read the Bible and hear it preached and taught, we are enjoying a personal encounter with the very Lord who made us. And so when we come together, even in our homes and wherever you're at and you have your Bibles open and you're hearing the Word of God and you're reading the Word of God, He is there with you. He is speaking to you. He is guiding you in this way. So we need no outer props. We need nothing else. We can worship outdoors or in our house somehow and God speaks to us through the Word. And lastly is this thought. Uh, God is active. Unlike the idol's who are dead, God is living and active. It says here, it talks about the works of God in verse 2. Uh, chapter 3, verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, your work. O Lord, do I fear. And then he talks about what is to come. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. What he is saying in that last phrase, he is saying... In the things to come, because he's saying, boy, the judgment is still coming upon the people of God. In the hard times to come, revive your work. Let people understand. The second part is, make it known, let people hear and understand. And thirdly is this idea, even in wrath, remember the mercy that you give to us. He speaks about the works of God. God is working in our midst. In the last six months, in the last six years, whatever it is, God has been working in your life. God has been allowing things to happen, so there is a transformation happening. Your faith is growing. You are growing in the image and likeness of God. You are growing in this way. And so, remember Him, that He is at work. God is transforming. He is guiding you in this way. This is illustrated in the Gospel of Mark. And I want to share this and wrap up our time. Uh, Jesus, remember, takes the disciples on the boat. And there's a couple instances, Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 6, when the waves come and the squall comes and hits the boats and the disciples are shaken. And these are professional fishermen. Uh, and the first thing that happens is we see in Mark chapter 4. Uh, remember when the boat is now hit by the squall and they cry out because Jesus is asleep and they go to him he sleep on the cushion in Mark 4:38 and they they wake him and they say teacher do you not care that we are perishing 
Do you not care that we are perishing? They, they ask. It's interesting because he seems almost indifferent to them. He is absent to them. He is away from them. The second thing we see again in Mark chapter 6, a little bit later on, he now has them in the boat again. And this time he doesn't even go on the boat. He is in the hills. He's praying. And the storm hits the boat again. And it tells us in Mark chapter 6, verse 48, he saw that they were making headway painfully. He, was, he saw them. He was watching them. And it is in this section, he now walks on the water and goes to them. He walks to them. And he tells them, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. What is he teaching? Is he saying that he's asleep on us, that he is away from us, he's letting us go through what we are going through all on our own? No. He's saying, I'm letting you go through this, and I am going to now keep you, and I'm going to watch you. I am increasing your faith. They address him as simply a teacher in Mark chapter 4. And he wants them to know that he is not just a teacher, but that he is their God. They ask that question, who can do this? And they're terrified when they see him. We are Christians. We are followers of God. We are the people of God. The world around us uh, might be following idols. Idols that tell us, if you do this, you have success. If you have that, you have success. We follow God. He is worthy of our trust. We hope in God. He is the one who cares for us and watches us. And so let me encourage you with that thought today, that you can trust Him, and only Him and no one else. Let me lead us in prayer and then I want to lead all of us in a time of communion. So let's pray together. Lord, the world follows idols that are powerless, that cannot speak. But Lord, we follow a God who is at work, who is near us. And so God, we trust in you. Uh, today we celebrate and remember as we take, uh, partake in this time of communion what you have done that allows us to draw closer to you. Thank you. Uh, we take this communion with grateful hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.